Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of The Simon Law Firm, Tim Cronin, personal injury trial attorney at The Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. Welcome to another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith. And I'm Tim Cronin. We're back with Fern Wolf. Welcome back. Thank you. And we're going to talk more about discovery, uses, and abuses. I brought with me the statistics from the Supreme Court. Uh, they just published them from last year. And, you know, who gets complaints against them? Yeah. I, and like, they don't. You're not saying names, but like the issue. Right. And this, these are public. You could get this online, which is where I got it yeah. yesterday. And so, so it's a report. And unsurprisingly, most complaints were in criminal than domestic. So and but they don't say anything about discovery. But in those two areas, criminal and domestic, I don't think there would be a lot. Not the kind of discovery that we're talking about. No, it's much. less. So your torts, right? Only 41 complaints. Is it is it is there a litigate just a litigation? Well, I'll give it to you. But labor law, there was one complaint. Yeah, (laughs) it's not. It's just. These, and these are complaints that can come from anywhere, right? I mean, I would right. imagine there's a, a, a I somebody once told me that a lot of complaints that the bar gets are about non-responsiveness, like timeliness of responsiveness by attorney. Um, I call them since I'm on a committee. I call them you don't call, you don't write. Yeah. Um, you know, just so yeah, other communication. And I think there might be a statistic about that. You know, that that it has to do with communication as an issue. And fee disputes, um, things like that. Yeah. Okay. So, for yes. how do we fix it? I mean, the Supreme Court runs the show. We are self-regulating, right? And then we have these committees, at least in Missouri. I don't really know how Illinois does it, thank goodness. I know we have the ARDC, the Attorney Registration and Disciplinary Commission. So it's not the bar because the Illinois State Bar Association is different from the ARDC, which is can be confusing. Yeah. And so it's really up, I guess, to the OC Office of Chief Disciplinary Counsel, I guess, that would be, you know, to figure out whether to start entertaining complaints in ongoing litigation or discovery or maybe going out and lecturing about it, saying yeah. that we're going to take this serious, maybe, or just maybe making, starting with awareness in forums like this, that this is an issue. I mean, we, we go from one extreme where some of the older attorneys who are still practicing never took ethics at all, didn't even know there was any such thing as professional responsibility and rules of ethics to people now who are being tested on it and taking a, a course. And so emphasizing with education that these rules of ethics do govern discovery and, you know, making sure that they know that. Yeah. By the time they get into, I mean, I took one of those courses in law school. <laughs> they don't talk about discovery and civil litigation really much in those courses. And by the time you start practicing and you learn from another lawyer, I imagine you like, okay, the law school doesn't know how it works in the real world. And this is what I have to do because my boss told me to do this and it gets reviewed by them. And then it gets reviewed by his boss, at least on the other side. It's less so on our side where we just work on our cases and do. Right. And we don't have pretty rare for us to ever have a repeat customer. I mean, how right. often and hopefully I, not. Right, right. How often does lightning strike one yeah. person? 
And where you mentioned that these people, the people on the defense side, that is all they have is they're relying on repeat customers. So I'm sure the pressure is much more on them to do what the client says. But ultimately, and, yeah. and so it's pretty easy for me to say um, that they need to exercise independent judgment, but they do need to exercise independent they do. judgment. I mean, I think the chief disciplinary counsel speaking on it at CLEs is a great idea. Like, we're going to start entertaining complaints about this. Other than that, you know, we can complain about it to opposing counsel all we want. It doesn't do any good. They don't care. We can file motions for sanctions. They never think they're justified, and they oppose them with vitriol. And they don't seem to ever either be successful no matter what happened or go as far as they should to curb the conduct in the future. And I get it. We're all part of a, you know, legal community, and we often know the judges, and they know the lawyers on the other side, and they know they have clients, and we go to bar events together, and nobody wants to hurt somebody else's career. But there's no way to stop it, absent courts imposing sanctions that stop it in the future. That's the only way to do it. And it's it's less and less frequent that that happens, in my experience, than it used to be. But they also the discovery abuses weren't even as bad before. It seems like at the beginning of my career, the federal rules hardly ever changed. Mm -hmm. And there's been a big change now to deal with electronic discovery. But aside from that, there have been other changes, so many of them, just to deal with discovery abuses, just to make sure that the parties who respond to discovery are doing so the right way. And then when you read the comments, it's this is to avoid the abuse, such and such. But <laughs> it doesn't work. <laughs> it doesn't work. None of these things work. And so obviously, and and some of the lawyers don't even realize that the rule changed. And the biggest change that I saw is in Rule 30B6, where you used to rely, and there's a lot of articles on how to do a good 30B6 notice where you're taking a corporate representative, and we rely on that rule a lot. Uh -huh. And now we're supposed to communicate with the other side. That's how the rule goes. Even if you do a 30B6 subpoena for a corporate representative from an independent witness, you're supposed to communicate with the other side about who they're going to produce. You don't have to guess anymore. And they still don't cooperate. So I have a big notice in yellow. You know, I send a color copy under this rule. We are supposed to communicate with each other. And I still don't get You can identify who the person is prior to the depot. Yeah. Who's going to talk about which topic? Yeah. That is a regular problem. Yeah. I mean, we get in Missouri State Court, we get, we'll get last minute email objections or if they, even if they actually follow the rule and file a motion for protective order. Because the rule requires at the same time that you designate the witness on every topic, and they don't do it. And that, that there's a Missouri Supreme Court case right on point that says you have not followed the rule motion protective order automatically tonight. And yet, repeatedly, we have these same issues or we get to the depot. Sometimes I'll push about telling me who the person is ahead of time. Sometimes I won't. It, it depends on if it's somebody that I've had it before and I trust that they're not going to do it. But we'll be going through it, and I'm asking questions, and they said it's the only corporate rep, and then I'm getting to topics, and they're like, this person can't address that. I mean, you can't expect one person to address every topic. And I go, well, you decided to produce one person, not me. You said they were here. The first question I asked is, are you here on all topics? Now you're 
now you're like hand picking as we go through the depot. No, we'll we'll pr- choose somebody else, and that's then you end up fighting for two months to get the other witness. Right. So what was put in the federal rule? Oh, it's in it's if you go to thir- go to thirty. Basically, that they have thirty to six. They must. Yeah. And so I put it in the notice. I highlight in yellow, and and then I start my emails, and you know when can we talk. And then I don't get a response. But if I eventually do get a response, I bring the email response with me. And that's exhibit one is my notice. Exhibit two is the response to the email. And then my first questions are, you know, do you consent to testify about this? You know, have you been designated? Do you consent? And we go through each topic. And then we go one by one. And then I get to topic, you know, 3B. And then the answer is, I don't know. Yeah. Who does Who does know? I'm not it's sure. like, I don't know. Wait a second. Or, well, how am I supposed to know? I don't do that. And I go, well, do you remember? You are not testifying for yourself. You are Mr. Corporation. Right. You have to give me all information right. known or reasonably available to the organization. And then I go to court and the judge will say, okay, that's the answer of the corporation. But that the corporation doesn't know, but that's not what I wanted. I wanted the corporation's yeah. knowledge. You know. I, I, yeah, I want an answer. Right. And too often, okay, okay, if that is the answer of the corporation, we'll follow up with, okay, so that's 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 what I'm going to hear at trial. You don't know. We get no evidence from this lawyer or any of their experts, and then the lawyers start barking. Well, no, that doesn't mean that. Yeah, it does. It's binding. And yet, in federal court, Vern, I have had judges flat out tell me they're not going to follow Rule 30b-6 when I got binding answers eliminating defenses or saying I don't know, I file a motion in limine saying their experts can't talk about it, the lawyers can't stand up and talk about it, and the motion was denied. That happened to me a year ago, and I was just, it's a federal judge, what are you going to do? But I was beside myself. I would have taken 20 other depots. It's the first depot I took. I relied on it. So what do you, what do, you do? In, in that case, since I had that happen, yeah. and I saw some research that said it's not a, a guaranteed motion in limine, I then said, okay, now I want a sanction for discovery abuse Yeah, since they never produced somebody because it has to be something. Yeah. Um, the whole point is we're on equal footing. You get to ask my client. Right. And, and they're the only person who can be produced. And those are binding on us. Right. We have one. Right. Yeah. We have one witness to our entire case, right. oftentimes in an employment case. You know, we have five documents, one person. <laughs> it's very easy for us to comply with discovery. Yeah. And and I realize they have a lot and there is no 30 B6 of our client. Yeah. Right. I'm sure. I mean, it is an awful, awful task for defendants, especially when you really do a thorough notice. Yeah. I'm sure it is not pleasant or fun, but the rule exists and it exists so that we don't have to poke around taking 50 depots harassing the corporation, working your way around to try to get an answer and never getting one. Right. And and so that rule is great. That, yeah. But that, again, was designed to deal with yes. tremendous amount of dispute. And there and there was a lot of case law, and I'll still see on a listserv that we're probably both members of, a lot of discussion of, you know, oh, you should read this article about how to get sanctions or whatever. And it or this case and the case is old it predates the new rule and people should be just using the new rule it's not that new it's not like it's 2023 or 2022 even and and they should just be following the the rule and the rule says you must cooperate but again it was designed to deal with lawyers abusing 
Rule 30b-6 because they wouldn't produce the right person. <laughs> so I learned about Rule 30b-6 in 1975. And so it's been around for a while. What do you do when you send a corporate rep notice, either in federal court or state court? Because the rules, are they track each other, right? Pretty close. Pretty close, but a little different now. When you get, in either case, a motion for protective order or to quash has to be filed, right? I've never gotten one. What do you do <laughs> when when you get, maybe this doesn't happen to you, Eric, I'm sure this has happened to you, when you get the night before the depot is supposed to happen, an email or a letter or, or a pleading with objections to corporate rep notice and it's top, this, we will not produce a witness on this topic, on this topic, we will only produce a witness in this limited scope. I've, I've taken two approaches. One, I've immediately responded and said, this is absolutely meaningless. You did not file a motion for protective order. I am proceeding tomorrow, and I'll file an appropriate motion for sanctions if necessary afterwards. I stopped doing that because the response I got was, well, then we're going to file a motion protective order, no depot tomorrow. And it's, no, you had to file it before. So now I do not respond. When they bring it up on the record in the depot, I say, I did not respond to you because you sent me a meaningless thing that, that has absolutely no basis in the rules. I'm proceeding with the depot. If your witness is not prepared to answer these questions, we'll figure out if we need to, if you need to reproduce somebody else or if we need to go to the court. And that's, I, I find that works better. Yeah, make uh, a record. Right make there. a record of it and get the answers you can and move forward. And usually they'll realize, okay, I better go get somebody. I don't want to go to the court. What do you... Do you ignore it when you get that? Well, the last one I got that was pretty close to that, although I've never gotten a motion for protective order, which is what they're supposed to do, or objections, is I have gone ahead with it. Yeah. I've just gone ahead with it. And then since the limit, the time limits and all that don't apply to 30B6s, I just continue it and keep taking as many as I need to take mm -hmm. to get the entire deposition in. Because, I mean, the goal is I want the information. Right. I, I just want to get the information. Yeah, I'm not trying to just accumulate sanctions both. Right. I want the infer I want the evidence. That's what I want. Right. I, I just want to know who decided to fire my client. I mean, I literally had a case where I had two defendants and, you know, the company and because it, I sue public employers a lot. So I had the police chief in the city and the city blamed the police chief for firing my client. The police chief said, no, I didn't make the decision. So, you know, I did a 30B6, and the city said, well, the police chief did it, and the yeah. police chief said no, you know. So nobody did. And I called defense counsel, and I said, I guess my client still works. Yeah. Like <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it was one of those. Yeah. Um, Where are her past due paychecks? Exactly. <laughs> His or her. Exactly. We did survive summary judgment in that one. Yeah. Um, and, again, you know, I'd ask the question, who made the decision? And I couldn't get a straight answer. So that was in my 30B6 is who decided to fire the plaintiff. And, you know, sometimes you just have to ask. You know, somebody has to be bound to that answer. Yeah, they have to answer it. Right. It's so relevant. Yeah, it, what, it's, it's kind relevant. of what you're making. <laughs> right. It's kind of what's important when when they're saying it, the motive was not discriminatory. Yeah. It's like, how do you know? Yeah. How do you know? How do you know? And and so in employment law, there's this thing called articulating a legitimate non-discriminatory reason with admissible evidence. Well, you can't have admissible evidence if you don't have a decision maker. Yeah. Because you can't get admissible evidence without right. a decision maker. <laughs> so. 
Anyway, that's that's thirty B six, but you really ought to look at it's not it's new ish. No, I just yeah, I just read the portion oh. that you talked about. Oh, did I did I back then? Oh, okay. Uh, so you have it in here that before or promptly after the notice or subpoena is served, the serving party and the organization must confer in good faith about the matters for examination. The subpoena must advise a non party organization of its duty to confer with the serving party and to designate each person who will testify. Is that the portion? You yes, that's it. I don't I don't remember when that was amended. It, it, I don't know if I put that in there. But and so, like I said, I highlight that in yellow on my notice or on my subpoena. And then I contact defense counsel or whoever I can from the organization and say, let's talk. We have an obligation to talk to each other. And then. You know, do you nothing. get, do you get, well, yeah, so you have a duty to discuss with me exactly what information you're getting where they try to drill down to exactly what questions you're going to ask. Because I we don't have to do that. Right. We don't. My 30B6s are pretty detailed. Yeah. They almost know everything I'm going to ask. I try to make them pretty detailed. I give exhibits. Mm-hmm. It's, I'm very detailed in my 30B6s at, at this point. And they're probably pretty similar to, I mean, you're doing employment law cases. Right. Right. So they're probably like you have, you tweak your your form one that you have. Right. And I mean, you know, I know that in a family medical leave act case, if they're disputing, you know, there's certain requirements. If they're disputing, you know, one of the more technical, but they're all requirements, you know, that my client worked 1,250 hours in the previous year, I'll do somebody with knowledge of the number of hours that the plaintiff worked in the in the in this you know in the calendar year or something like that because it's a requirement sometimes they'll just deny it in the answer it's like why did you deny that we know that he was a full-time employee and he worked but i'll just you know someone with knowledge of one of those requirements if they didn't admit that so sometimes we'll get 50 employees in a 75 mile radius so we'll say you know someone with knowledge of you know the number of employees, you know, for each working day, because nobody keeps track of who worked each working day. They do it by payroll, and then they usually end up admitting this, <laughs> that they had the right number of employees. We often get the same defense attorneys because many companies are now represented by boutique defense firms mm-hmm. that are just employment law defense firms, so they pretty much know what they're doing. We all know there are rules that require them to tell us about all insurance. We know it. And that includes giving us the policies. And we get a coverage tree. We get to know all layers. We're entitled to all of the information of who may be responsible for paying the judgment. Earlier in my career, I don't think this was a problem. We would serve the standard interrogatory request for production. Almost all the time, we'd get it all right away. And there would be no question that we obviously got it all. There'd be excess policies. Increasingly... I am fighting in every single case to even initially, they won't turn over even the policy when the rule requires it and they give a deck page or they say they'll supplement and I fight for months to actually find out any coverage. And then I insist on a corporate rep on the topic and I send letters and then I found out find out a second layer of coverage. And then when I finally get somebody under oath to answer questions, I find out about another, like insurance coverage is being withheld from discovery repeatedly and increasingly in the last few years. Have you encountered that, either of you? Because everybody in this office has increasingly been encountering it. And every plaintiff lawyer I talk to 
has been encountering it, where they're hiding insurance coverage. Are, are you asking us interrogatory or a request for production? Both. And then because I make it a topic. Make it up to you well, that. Under Rule 26 in disclosures, they have to give you. Correct. So, I mean, it, That's you're supposed in, to get that. In federal disclosures. Court. Right, right. In, in state court, you ask, you, we ask in the interrogatories right. and make very clear all levels provide the policies and deck pages. And there is a state court rule that says they have to give it to you. So it's not in initial disclosures, but we all put it in. And in both scenarios, even in federal court, I follow up with discovery about it. I'm like figuring out halfway through or at the end of the case that there's insurance coverage that wasn't disclosed that they definitely knew about. And the only interpretation that I can have is if plaintiffs think there's less coverage, they'll settle the case within that coverage and not. And it's, yeah, but I'm not going to do that until I I condition any settled demand upon all available insurance coverage having been disclosed. And oftentimes, that's when I'll finally find out additional coverage. Even though I've taken a corporate rep, I've asked interrogatories, I've asked requests for production. Are you encountering this? Are you not encountering it as much in employment cases? Well, we have encountered it. And in fact, we were just talking about this yesterday, I guess, even in documents. How do you know? that you haven't gotten all, I mean, you, you really you don't. don't know is one of my bosses when, when I did commercial collections for a short period of time, if they want to hide the money in the backyard, you know, and bury it. And the, I mean, the lawyer doesn't, I can tell the lawyer doesn't uh -huh. oftentimes. They were hired by a primary carrier. They were told that's the only one. And sometimes I can tell they didn't know, but sometimes they don't know, but their client did. So why doesn't the client? I don't, it's, I don't, I don't, I, I mean, I never get to get into that because it's attorney-client privileged information. But fascinatingly, when a demand is finally made after I've, I have a corporate rep in every case, I insist on it as that a topic. And sometimes I'll find out at the corporate rep or they'll, the corporate rep will say, I'm not prepared on that topic, even though there was no motion for protective order. But if we get to a point where we make a demand conditional upon all of that being all available coverage, that's when I'll find out there's more. And we're like, okay, well, that demand is withdrawn. Um, I guess we'll go back to the drawing board. It's it's in the majority of my cases now. Mm. That and it did not used to be. I just added add to thirty b sixes and yeah, <laughs> you'll get pushback. Uh, They'll I, go, can't we just answer it in discovery? We answered it, and I say, I'm sorry, I'm not accusing you of anything but I need a witness under oath who is going to be prepared to answer that question. And I, they fight about it. I'll tell you one thing we had to do. So under Missouri, and I don't know if this is still the case because I hadn't ha haven't had it come up in a while, but there was a while when if you wanted to sue a public entity, and it might have just been cities for re um, retaliatory discharge in in. Well, and this was when there was still a common law claim. There isn't anymore. But under um, Missouri law, you could only do it if there was insurance coverage. Mm -hmm. And so before we would file the lawsuit, we would do a Sunshine Act request. Doesn't that make sense? Yeah. So we did one against one of the municip one of the many municipalities in St. Louis County, and they wouldn't give it to us. And we had to sue them under the Sunshine Act. And we found out there was insurance. And then I had to consult with mm -hmm. an insurance lawyer because we don't think they made a claim and how to deal with that to make sure that the insurance company had notice of what 
you know, because insurance policies will say that. And, yeah. You know, I'm not an expert in insurance law. So I had to find out how do we make sure the insurance company knows about this. I've had that problem where I get we find out about excess coverage and it's two years after the incident and litigation. And then the excess carrier is we didn't you didn't notify us about the claim. And so no coverage. And, and then I'm like, sounds like we have a legal malpractice claim or or or, 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 or or something, because it's not my client's fault that the defendant and their lawyer advising them didn't make sure they notified the excess carrier for there to be coverage. But it's really discovery abuse. Yeah, it, it is. It boils back down to discovery abuse because you did ask the question to begin with. And under federal, at least, they were required to give you that information from the get-go. Yeah in their disclosures and they fail to do that. So maybe sanctions right there. Yeah. And here's an answer I increasingly get is defendant is self-insured for an amount that exceeds any reasonable possible judgment in this case. Or defendant has a primary policy of blah, blah, blah that exceeds any reasonable. And it's okay. Well, you, I mean, kudos to you. You don't get to decide that. I find that as opposing counsel, we frequently disagree about the value of the case. Sometimes you win, sometimes I win, and it's way more than my demand. Tell me all the insurance coverage. Yeah, and the so, rule doesn't say no. that. Yeah. And eventually, you get if you keep following up and following up, you get it. But it's become yet another thing that has to be fought about that didn't used to be fought. About. I mean, our, the federal rule 26 requires it. Yeah, I think it's four. Missouri it, Supreme Court. One, one is... It's number four. Right, it's number four. Three is damages, mm -hmm. which we have. Yeah. And then four is insurance, which they, or it's vice versa. But even like the that. state court rules, the basic discovery rule eventually gets to like all insurance information and policies need to right. be turned over. And it's, we're insured up to a, a, a first level that exceeds what you can get. I, I respectfully disagree. Um, please tell me the insurance company. It's the first thing the mediator wants to know. Yeah, yeah. sure. Right. It, Highly informed, knowing the coverage levels is everything, oftentimes. It's where there are pressure points. And yeah, it's not admissible in unless somebody opens a door to it in front of the jury, but because it helps resolve cases and we're entitled to know who we may have to go collect from, the, I mean, the mediator is going to insist on knowing right away and go into the defense room and go, Who's here for who? What adjuster are you? What level is that? When do you come in? Okay, now I know when I can get you to put pressure on him. I think yeah. some of the courts even require the adjuster to be there. Federal. Um, federal requires the adjuster. Federal to requires, be yeah, um, at every level to be personally present. I had a motion for sanctions I had to file in the last couple of years in federal court where the lawyer showed up alone. And just it refused to get the insurance people. And then I found out the excess carrier wasn't notified. This is the same case I was talking about earlier with the 30B6 thing. And just refused to get the insurance people on and said my demand was outrageous. And um, to file the mo knew I was going to file a motion for sanctions. So he filed a preemptive motion for sanctions the same day as the mediation saying my demand was too high. That's <laughs> not a basis for a motion for sanctions, by the way. That was denied, so I, I immediately filed my own saying he's trying to muddy the waters, and they got sanctioned. Aren't we back to Rule 3.2, expediting litigation? Yeah. If you withhold that information regarding the all the layers of insurance, 
Yeah. You're you're delaying litigation. I mean, you're, you're correct. We could be settling this case, right. moving it forward, deciding who to settle with, who not. And it's it's just gumming it all up. And there's no meritorious contention or objection to it when the rules require it. It involves dishonesty, fraud, deceit, or misrepresentation, like all of these. Oh, it's signing disclosures under yeah. Rule 26G. You know, you have to sign them as the attorney. And that's something that even if you are in a defense firm, you know, and you are told to do something, although I know associates can get out of certain things under the ethical rules if they're instructed by a partner. Yeah. But but if you are told, you could be the responsible partner. You know, you sign and you know that there is insurance. I mean, but under your scenario, maybe the maybe the law firm didn't even know that there was insurance, but they do have a duty to inquire, and they sign and they are certifying that you know that there's nothing, that there is no insurance. Yeah. And so that is, I mean, they have an obligation under 26G, and I know there's a Missouri rule just like that. It is. You know, it's it, in Rule 56. Yeah, it's one of the 50. Yeah. Right, there is one. I think I found it. Uh, um, it's it's just an example of yet more things we're now fighting about in discovery that it just there's no basis for, and we didn't used to fight about. I mean, I understand we're going to fight about me asking about other incidents, and I'm sure there's particular things you know you're going to fight about in every employment case, and you understand based on the circumstances of the case, you may get some of the things you're asking for about that topic or more. But now it's it's devolved into World War Three about everything, including things that there are per, ex, explicit rules saying you have to turn over. It's well, insurance, right? In particular, yeah. or in our Rule Twenty Six disclosures, they're supposed to give me addresses and phone numbers, and then I was explaining to you, I get that Con- I'm supposed to. Contact through counsel. Yeah. And so I get these discovery responses where the the employer says that they have no knowledge of, of something involving a third-party administrator of an employee benefit program. And they have no knowledge because it's this third party. In their disclosures, they list this person from the third-party administrator of their benefit program. They list her by name. And how do I communicate with her? Through big defense firm. Yeah. Only through her. Now, they have a duty to communicate with her to answer the interrogatories and certainly to to get documents under their possession, custody, or control. And they obviously, and they didn't want to give me the contracts between the administrator and the company that probably said that, you know, indemnification, among other things, but that you're, our our documents are your documents. You are doing this for us. Yeah. And, and they don't want you to have that. <laughs> That's objection. It's devastating for my case. <laughs> yes. Objection. I don't want you to have that. Yeah. Right. We're going to take a break here. We've been talking about discovery uses and abuses with Fern Wolf. Thank you for joining us so far, and thank you for agreeing to come back. My pleasure. This has been another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Feith. And I'm Tim Cronin. See you next time. The Jury is Out is brought to you by The Simon Law Firm. At The Simon Law Firm PC, we believe in the power of pooling resources in order to create powerful results. We often lend our trial skills and experience to lawyers around the country to achieve better results for their clients. 
our attorneys welcome the opportunity to work with you on your case, offering vast resources, seasoned litigators, and a sterling reputation. You can contact us at 314-241-2929. And if you enjoyed the podcast, feel free to share your thoughts with John, Tim, and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law. And subscribe today because the best lawyers never stop learning.